So this being without electricity gives us a good message on how dependent we become on switching on and switching <coughs> off lights and central heating and hot water. <laughs> how convenient, you know, the uh, life for us is in, you know, on that level of technology and physical comfort. Reflecting yesterday or you know how when we first came to live in uh, the UK they, from the Thai Forest Monastery you know living in a city like London and suddenly we're aware of a you know, this is a society that is the first industrialized society with, with England. Uh, an enormous amount of of uh, throwaway material, furniture, everything. You know, there's secondhand shops, or you can just junk shops. There's just so much stuff here. There's, several hundred years of manufacturing, so. Whereas in the time of the Buddha, you know, there were all these Vinaya rules around robe cloth and that is because there's no doubt, you know, it's hand woven and everything had to be done, took time, so material was, cloth material was much more, you know, you you couldn't just be so free, freely discarding it. So this Bangzakula, the rag robe, you know, the cloth that is thrown away, must have been pretty, you know, the stuff that was absolutely, you know, they'd worn till it couldn't be worn anymore and threw it away. <laughs> and this, this was uh, the allowance of the Buddha, you know, for covering the body, this very low standard Bhangsakula cloth. But now notice that, that this is a reflection on the requisites. This isn't a rule you have to go, you can only wear rags. You know, you have to, you can't, because then the katina privileges and the katina ceremonies, they were, the, when the lay people wanted to offer good material for robe making, and this the Buddha allowed. So, you have this, the point of, is reflecting on the, the convention of alms mendicancy. So that I've never had to go around taking rags off of corpses to make my robes. <clears throat> I've always, you know, that usually give you the best material they can find. People are like that, you know, their devotion. So this this is a way of of cultivating gratitude. You know, when you when you're an alms mendicant, you're dependent. You're making yourself dependent on the generosity, kindness of the lay community. So we're not a priesthood, a kind of upper 
class or caste that that seeks privilege, you know, privileged life. But, you know, on this level of being dependent for basic requirements, the four requisites. Now, gratitude comes from this kind of reflection, what Gatanyu Gatawaiti. Because it's so easy to take it for granted, you know, it's so easy to, because of all the respect we get, you know, we think we're, we become kind of a priestly caste, you know. You know, you should, you know, you should give me the best. I'm, I'm a, keep the life of celibacy and I'm very pure and holy person. Oftentimes we can develop a kind of supercilious sense of our own importance. And that's why this, this, this reminding of ourselves, of our need, our dependency. Now this reflecting on it, then, you know, first it's merely intellectual and maybe even sentimental, but, you know, pursued, then it does, you do feel this katanyu katawaiti, a sense of gratitude, which is heartfelt, it's not just sentimental. Because you really appreciate, you know, the, the the opportunity that's given to us to to live and practice the Dhamma. Now, one can be too idealistic about this too, you know. Like a, sometimes monks or nuns will, you know, they're self-disparaging, so they think they're not good enough for the requisites. They you know, you have to be really pure and worthy to of the alms food, that kind of thing. And that's Sakyaditi. You know, that's being very idealistic and clinging to ideals. So so the four requisites is not idealism. It's not a kind of intimidation of how you should feel. But it's 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 a reflection. So you you're contemplating this. You know, the food we get, the robes we wear, the shelter for the night, the medicine that's offered is... Seen with, with you know, you begin to, to appreciate, because it's always, you know, much better than the, than the basic allowance. Like I'm getting this very expensive eye treatment in Bangkok for a macular degeneration. And they have to fly me back every three or four months, you know, from London to Bangkok. <laughs> Plus the, the, the very posh eye hospital on a cutting edge technology. So I'm getting, you know, much better treatment than I would if I were a lay person. I'm sure. How many ordinary lay people could afford to do that? <laughs> and it's ironic. But this has been offered, you know, and so... But to take it for granted, you know. But to reflect, you know, this is, this is the generosity, the faith, the respect, 
towards the Sangha, not even taking it personally, not saying it's, you know, it's a kind of, it's for Ajahn Sumato kind of thing, but seeing it in terms of, of, you know, devotion, respect for Sangha, for Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Now, Katanyu Gatavaiti is, uh, you know, one of the, the fruits of the holy life. You know, it's a, it's a lovely feeling in the heart because, you, you know, you, it gives you, it gives you a sense of, of joy and appreciation mm. and, and, <coughs> Uh, it it has a kind of balancing effect emotionally, contentment and gratitude. Now, if you if you don't have that, then you're <clears throat> then you're you know we're always looking for something better. We're not content, and we're not we don't develop gratitude. So. Then the desire mind, desire is always looking, you know, could conceive of some better place than this, a better monastery, better whatever, you know, better teacher, better everything. And then, you know, we, we become discontented. Well, you can't make yourself contented as a willful act. It's not sentimental, you know, I should be content. But it's through recognizing the suffering of discontentment. So it's not intimidating, you know, not, it's not a categorical, a categorical imperative. Thou should be content with the requisites and grateful. It's not a commandment. Because you can't, you know, that's just, that would be tyranny. That would be tyrannical. So notice that it's, it's a reflection, a consideration, you know, of, of the conventional forms that we're living with. What is a Buddhist monasticism? Alms mendicancy, what's its purpose? What, what are its advantages? So discontentment then is dukkha. So and this is, you know, pointing to, you know, if we feel discontented, <clears throat> ungrateful, just critical and averse. It's not intimidating saying you shouldn't feel like that. But this is where the, you know, the, the practice, vipassana, taking dukkha, because that's suffering, to be, always be discontented, always wanting something better, or not wanting something to be the way it is. You know, spavadana, vipavadana, gamadana. When you recognize that, this is, this is, this restless energy of desire, how easily we get pulled into. <clears throat> and so you, you start noticing, you know, waken to dukkha, the first noble truth, and the second noble truth, the three kinds of desire that we grasp out of ignorance. So we use our, 
you know, these these feelings of ingratitude or critical tendencies or discontentment, not to beat oneself up with because you shouldn't feel like that, but in practice it's the cultivation of the path. That's why this uh, Four Noble Truths is such a pragmatic teaching. You know, it's not intimidating and you know, and saying how you should you should love God and you should be grateful for everything. You should you shouldn't be selfish. You should be you should love all sentient beings equally, and you shouldn't have any preferences. And you know, you should love everybody in the sangha equally, and uh, be grateful for the generosity we receive. And then it, this gets into, it's still Sakya Ditti, isn't it? It's ideal, it's, uh, and then we can make us feel unworthy. You know, if we start seeing that we we feel angry and discontented and, and hate everybody here, then we can feel that we're unworthy, we're bad, we're, we shouldn't feel like this. This is suffering, isn't it? Dukkha. So what is it that awakens to this? That, that which is aware of suffering. Is it suffering? And so this persistent investigation, you know, that which is aware of discontentment, of anger and hatred, of unhappiness, of despair, that which knows that, you know, when you're feeling despair, you know, you're aware. I feel I just feel life is hopeless and there's no hope for me, kind of thing. What is it? There's an awareness of that feeling, isn't it? That's not permanent <coughs> feeling. And so this is like investigating that which is aware. You know, so you ask yourself: There's awareness of this despair. So we, we, we name the feelings, eh? we name the feeling we have as despair. Hopelessness is like this. And you're aware of it, you can, you can kind of feel it in your bones, in your body, or just mentally, just this, this oppressive kind of dark cloud around one's heart. You know, you feel it's like this. This awareness then, and the, and the object, the, the, that feeling we call despair. You know, so this is, this is like vipassana, you're looking into the nature of it. So you begin to, because if we don't do this, then we, we just become despairing. You know, we become all these changing conditions. So we're kind of victims of circumstances. You know, we just helplessly caught in, in the conditioning that we've acquired with no way out of it. So we become, you know, push the button, a happy button, and you're happy, push the miserable button, and you're miserable. You know, say, everybody loves me, I'm happy, nobody loves me, I'm depressed. The four, the eight worldly dhammas, you're just a victim of circumstances. So everybody loves me is like this, and no, and everybody hates me is like this. You know, this is this is reflecting. You know, you can 
you know, they're of equal value. If you attach to the feeling that everybody should love me or everybody loves me, you can't sustain it. Because inevitably somebody hates you. So, I mean, you know, you can't make everybody love you as a kind of continuous demand from the universe. Then everybody will definitely hate you. <laughs> if you demand to be loved, I guarantee everybody's going to hate you. Because <laughs> you can't love somebody, you know, that demands it. Ultimately, when you talk about unconditioned love, yes. But in terms of heart-warmed, heart connections with others, if you, if you expect or demand love from them, you can't. It's just, you know, you can feel sorry for them. It's about the best you can cough up at the time. Or respect, you know, like, you should respect me. Because I am the senior monk here at Amravati, and I have 40 vases, and I'm the teacher, I'm the abbot. I'm a senior monk, you should respect me. And then when you think, if I, if I demanded that, I would be making it impossible for you to respect me because I'm not being worthy of respect. That's Sakya Ditti, isn't it? That's self saying, you should respect my Sakya Ditti. <laughs> How can I demand that, you know, when you look at it practically speaking? But we incline to that, you know, Sakya Ditti is, you know, we want, we, we feel a need, we want, we have needs, we have desires. And so the first noble truth is the, is this, uh, the, the, the key is only I feel unhappy, miserable, depressed, despairing, unloved. It's like this. Then I, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's awareness. I really embrace this feeling. You know, I want to understand it. You know, I'm, I'm willing to be this, to feel this emotion, this despair. So rather than just ignoring it or indulging in it, there's this openness to this 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 uh, emotion of despair, like this. Then uh, you know, for me, this is how the sound of silence becomes very strong, and I stop. You know, I stop trying to think. Uh, you know, analyze or you know, justify it or blame it on anybody, but just feel it. The, the gut feeling of hopelessness and despair is like this. And if I stay in this awareness, then that that feeling itself, you can you can be aware of its its cessation, because it is you know whatever, no matter how permanent it may seem. If you if you stop refueling it with with ignorance. Then it, you're aware of it merely as an energetic experience. It's like this. Then it, its nature's to cease. And then you recognize non-despair. You can actually discern that its presence and when it ceases. And then cessation, the reality of cessation. Now for me, this, this is the third noble truth, Nirodha Satya. It's the cessation of Sakyatiti, Tila, uh, Tila Patabrahma, Savichikicha. 
it's the cessation, you know, of that, of what ha what has arisen. And so when things, when conditions cease, then this is, this is a natural state. This is pure consciousness. Deathless. Vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapato pabang. It's splendor of pure conscious awareness. It's non-personal. But that sounds a little bit over the top, splendid in everywhere and that, because then you start creating, you're looking for something special. You know, kind of like, <coughs> a, you know, in a movie, or a kind of rainbow paradise. But this is, this isn't, it's, 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 it's to be, you know, it's, it's like relief, it's freedom. It's not, you know, something splendid in the, in the sense of conditioning. Not rainbow fairyland of paradise of eternal youth and beauty. But it's indestructible. It is when you recognize it. And your relationship to it then is through, you know, a remembering, re re sati, or relect, re reflecting, recollecting, this is it. Because the habit formations are strong, you get pulled back into ignorance and self and fear and desire and all that. But once you've once you've fully rec uh, recognized this, then you cultivate that. You know, wherever you know, when, when you're sick, when you're healthy, happy, sad, everything is great, everything is horrible. You you, this is the path. This is the way, you know, keep referring to it, remembering it, resting and trusting. It doesn't matter what happens anymore. Now this uh, alms mendicancy, as you can see in a country like this, which is not a Buddhist, uh, but it works. I mean, this, is, this monastery here is supported by alms, by generous donations. And so, I mean, it, it is powerful, you know, it amazes me how the temple got built and how this, this Amravati survives on Om. Because according to my cultural conditioning, this shouldn't work. <laughs> it doesn't fit into the cultural expectations of an American. So it is a, not a miracle, you know. That, uh, but it's like, you know, it's like I've always felt that the, the Buddhist, uh, the Buddha was, uh, you know, it's uh, pointing to the goodness of humanity. And when you think of life here at Amravati, that, you know, this, this tends to be a place where people like to come because it brings out that side of them, brings out their goodness, the generosity. It accepts them for what they are, and then it encourages and invites. And of course, we need that. We all long for that, you know, to 
because we live in a society that is very competitive and intimidating. You talk to people living in London, you know, in the professions, you know, they're stressed out, having nervous breakdowns and addiction, because that's a tough way to live, you know, always competing and and uh, always having to, you know, run around and and uh, think of yourself first. You know, what, what, how, how can I get ahead of this one? Keep my place or get what I want. Now, samatha practices. They say samatha vipassana. Now, samatha practices are they? You know, you develop the vitaka vichara, piti sukha. Upeka Ekakata, the, the jhana factors. Now when you contemplate these, this is a way of, of say, cheer, cheering up the mind, brightening the mind, the conditioned mind. You know, so you're taking positive conditions, like Vitaka Vichara is taking a meditation subject, like Metta or, or Anapanasati, or, you know, the uh, casino meditations or whatever. You know, it's usually, it's a positive kind of object. And concentrating on it, like mantra, puto, and you're, you know, you're, you're sustaining attention on this, this very positive Vidaka Vichara, intentionally, which leads to Piti, or, you know, it's a sense of rapture, of, of physical kind of well-being and, and mental happiness. And then <coughs> a kind of samadhi. So this, like these reflections, like, can lead towards that, you know, towards jhana, towards, you know, the kind of uplifting, inspiring brightening consciousness. Now for some people that are quite positive this comes very easy. But for a lot of people very negative, you know, the tendency is to see things through what's wrong, through negative perception. So then, you know, there's, you know, depending on your character, you know, if you can't sustain or develop samatha, then go right into you know this, you know, encouraging the sense of contemplating this sense of misery or despair, and this inquiring into it, like, like why, you know, instead of trying to analyze why do I feel despair, what's wrong with me, it's not analysis or trying to figure out why I have this particular problem. It's recognizing, looking, admitting the problem is like this. Not in the sense of admitting that it's my problem, but it is like this. This feeling, this emotion is like this. So then you can, you know, you can, you know, you've got to start from where you're at. If, you, if you're caught in negative attitudes and that, trying to, to just suppress them with, with uh, samatha practices, it's very difficult to do that. 
But also, the way oftentimes Westerners approach jhana is with desire, you know, to attain it. I did this in the beginning, trying to to achieve these different stages. According, you know, I read Bisuti Maga and that. So I, you know, very, you know, it's not, this is a really, you know, got to get these jhanas. Because they sounded like, you know, like attainments. And so I remember, you know, desperately seeking this. And then uh, sometimes I would, you know, I'd get into very blissful states. But then, you know, you'd lose it. Whatever you attain, whatever you get, you lose. This Lung Po Cha was always emphasizing. You know, if you want to get something, you can get, maybe you get what you want, but you also going to lose it. So if one's dependent on, you know, just on, on jhana for, you know, feeling successful in it and, it, and have being attained, there's always this other side. You know, you have to, you know, you have to exert a lot of control of everything to, to sustain that delusion. But in Vipassana, where you're actually looking into the nature of things, and this this is interesting. To me, I found this interesting because, you know, I began to understand, see see the causes of suffering. In terms of Dhamma, not because, uh, you know, I happen to be, uh, you know, a neurotic heap of neuroses that creates misery around me. Give up that perception, because that's Sakyaditi again. But, uh, see, this, this recognizing desire, dhanha. I decided I'd become an expert on desire. Now this is a slightly Sakyaditi prone, you know. <laughs> but it was a kind of determination, because it seemed to be what Buddha was encouraging with the second noble truth. <coughs> now you can become an expert on desire not through studying uh, in the library about different kinds of desire that other people have. I didn't. I, I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in in that. But in you know recognizing like these three categories: gama dana, power dana, dana. Because, you know, this is a desire realm, a desire body. This is sense, this is sensual, sensory. It's all about desire, this realm. You know, it's, it's, it's natural. Desire is, is this realm. It's the energy of this realm. It's about procreating the species, survival, and all these kind of basic desires that are, you know, not personal. And then on, you know, uh, then we, we create bhavadana, you know, vipavadana, as we get into the sakyaditi level. So then you take, just like dana, desire, and in English, desire is always uh, kind of pejorative, isn't it? It's, it? We use the word desire in English, usually it, it, it's not very nice. There's a slight taint to it, it's kind of stained. And uh, that's generally how that the English word desire. But dana doesn't necessarily mean something not nice. We can have desire, good desires, altruistic desires. 
<clears throat> you know, so it's not like dunha doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or negative in any way. But if we don't know desire, you know, like you can see altruistic people wanting the welfare of others, wanting everybody to be happy. How many of you, you know, in this community want everybody to get along and be harmonious? How many of you, you know, that's a desire, isn't it? Wanting everybody here, monks and nuns, to love each other and care, nurture and help each other and live harmoniously. And when we don't, when there's friction or problems, we get very upset because we don't want that. We don't want to live in a community that's dysfunctional and where people don't get along and where there's problems. Now this is looking at desire, isn't it? Not saying, you know, there's anything wrong with it. Because <clears throat> it is, you know, it's beautiful to want, you know, to, to long for peace and happiness and harmony. But if you don't understand it, then you, you know, you're always going to be hurt by it, by, by the, when things aren't that way. I heard, you know, Buddhist monks and nuns should, you know, that you get all this intimidation, like, you know, should be full of compassion and we should all live in harmony here at Amravati. You know, lay people come here expecting have this wish, you know, to find a place where at last everybody lives in harmony and respects each other. And then when they live here very long, they see other <laughs> And they become disillusioned, disappointed, because a projection, you know, if they're Buddhists, they must be. If they're monks and nuns, they must be holy and sacred and pure. And Now this is, this is, you know, wanting, isn't it? Desire. Bawadanha, Vipavadanha. You know, all of us have been through this. You know, wanting, wanting a monastery where everybody gets along. You know, I've suffered a lot from that. <clears throat> Not wanting the conflicts or the dissension or the, the traumas that, that come. Wanting to run away from them. You know, feeling, well, I'd rather you know, living in a group of monks and nuns is too, too much conflict. I want to live alone. I don't want to live. I'm about to too many monks and nuns here. Too many people. I want to live in chitters. Trying to get chitters nuns to come up here and live, they won't do it. <laughs> too many. So this is, uh, you know, the this investigation, desires like this, dunha, attachment, becoming. So I become my desires. You know, if I'm not aware, then I become that way. So I, you know, I become somebody who, who's discontented, who's disillusioned, uh, who's fed up, who's despairing. Or even when everything goes just the way I want it to, you know, there's always this, if I grasp that, oh, now this is perfect, the, the community here, just, it's just never been so good, you know, everybody just so wonderful and so happy. But also, 
there's desire for to keep it that way. You know, what if it, you know, because there's always, you know, it's going to change. That's not, you know, you can't sustain it and keep it this way. So there's always, you know, this fear of, of uh, alien forces or things coming in that are going to destroy my happiness. And so this reflection, you know, observing the way it is, this fear, you know, wanting, fear of loss, fear of change. So even if you're, even if you've got everything, there's still this, 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 this bit of fear of anxiety. It's going, like you can't keep it. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. This is a reflection, monastic reflection. But then in terms of my own experience of developing samatha, I've found, you know, I've done that and it's, you know, encourage it. You know, certainly skillful and, and helpful to, you know, a lot of it comes through really, you know, real good samatha practice is relinquishing, not attaining, not trying to, out of desire to live in a kind of blissful, you know, moronic paradise where, you know, you don't, you don't want to be aware of anything that is unpleasant. That's like a moronic paradise, isn't it? This kind of looking up and refusing to notice anything but, but get mesmerized into, into, uh, through, through hypno, kind of hyp, hypnotic absorption. But, you know, the samatha is like really brightening consciousness, putting beautiful conditions into consciousness, reflecting, you know, on the goodness of the life, of the, of the generosity of the lay people, of the you know, the power of the Buddha, of, of these kind of things will inspire, lift the spirit. But if you're in a really cynical state then, then, and you can't do it, then, then turn, observe that, you know, this, I hate Buddhism, I think all monks and nuns are a bunch of creeps and Amravati is a hole of pestilence. <laughs> I mean, if, if you know, you can't sustain, you practice metta and, and, and uh, brighten your mind just as an act of will by when you're feeling like that. But you can admit you're feeling like this. Now, I found in my own practice, you know, when suffering from extreme anger at one point, rage and indignation, righteous indignation, was so powerful, that's such a strong emotion, that I had to really, really feel it, you know, so I, I wrote it out, you know, I wrote this tablet, line tablets, and I wrote all this, this scurrilous, vitriolic nastiness out. And just making it conscious, you know, 
unexpurgated, unedited, uncensored anger and hatred, meanness and nastiness from you know that I could possibly conceive of. But the aim was not was wasn't you know to harm anybody. It was just to allow things to reach consciousness. And by doing this, I found after point, you know, there's nothing more to write. That once you kind of allow yourself, but not believe it. I didn't believe any of it. Wasn't that I was, you know, if I started believing it, then I, then I, the point is lost. But just bringing into consciousness my frustration and anger and resentment by writing it out, I filled several pages. And then suddenly I couldn't couldn't think of anything more nasty or more <coughs> horrible to say. <coughs> Nothing would come up. So I mean, this is this is you know it's a like a rather than a, you know trying to send a voodoo curse out of evil intentions. It was you know the aim was to free the consciousness of this pestilence, this negativity, this nastiness. Not by, you know, creating guilt and, and uh, fear of it, but by confronting it, allowing it to be what it is. So these are like skillful means, how to deal with, uh, how to work with the way it is. You know, whatever, you know, you can't, whatever way it is, you know. It's, uh, this is a developing cultivating panya, or wisdom. So you've got this sati-sampachanya, sati-panya, skillful means, samatabhipasana. That's why, you know, this, this retreat, like, what I'm doing is encouraging, at least what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm sorry if it sounds like that, but it's, encouraging because you know I'm not I don't want to you know I don't want to put myself in that position of telling you how you should practice or how you what how you should be so these these morning reflections are attempts at least towards encouraging you know we can I can do that I think that's the only way I can really help, you know, is encouraging the sense of you, you can do this. This is, this is, you know, I'm not, this is a, you know, whether you do it or not, it's up to you. But we do need encouragement because so many of us suffer from a sense of we can't do it. We're not ready. We're not good enough. Or it's, we can conceive Buddhist meditation as something so, you know, beyond us. Or, in the, you know, seeing ourselves as, as too impure. We're not pure enough to do this. Or we don't have enough barami, collected virtues. Or, and it's so easy to believe this, this uh, sense of lack of self-worth. Where when you, you know, you recognize the Buddhist teaching, it isn't about a teaching that is for very advanced, you know, special special kinds of human beings who are pure already. 
No, it's, it's about human suffering and the willingness to use the suffering, to take suffering and understand it. So to me, you know, if, you, if you're here, you know, don't doubt that you, know, you, you don't have enough bar of me. You have enough to be here. Why? You know, there's not, not very many people, is it, compared to the population of the United Kingdom? <laughs> it's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? So don't go around thinking you're special, especially. <laughs> you're much more advanced than the rest of the people in this country, but... <laughs> but the encouragement of, uh, you know, that, that this is, that this is the opportunity that we have and to, uh, you know, to really uh, see that you can, you know, this is not asking you to do something advanced or that you can't do, but it is encouraging a change, isn't it, from just being a conditioned personality into trusting in, a, in your ability to pay attention, to observe, to be the puto. You know, it's an encouragement towards that, toward saying, no, this is the way to do it, not to just analyze yourself on a personal level. Think about yourself and your problems and your neurotic habits and your past and all this and endlessly you know, regurgitate and think about yourself uh, through Sakyaditi, but really observing Sakyaditi, the sense of self is like this, of me and mine is like this, suffering is like this. So it's, this is like intuitive awareness. So you go, you know, it's a transcending of the condition. You know, if, you, if you're just Sakyaditi and that's all, then there is no hope. You're just stuck in the trap of condition. You've been conditioned by life, this is, and there's no way out. There's no, there's not the unborn, unformed, uncreated, unconditioned. So there's no escape from the born, the created, the formed. If you got a bad load of conditioning from the beginning, your birth traumas, your lack of proper nurturing and, and misfortunes of life, then you're stuck with that. It's just tough luck. There's no way, you know, you you get, you know, you if you don't get a good deal when you're born, then you, you're just stuck for life in this misery. But because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So what is that? Because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, then there is escape. You aren't just a helpless victim of the conditioning you've had, you've acquired. So that unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned is what then right now is is awareness. It's not something you don't have. It's not something remote and refined that, you know, that you have to go to India to find it or you can't do it here because, you know, you think that the Bodhi tree is in Bodhgaya in India. <laughs> That's real Sila Bhattabharamasa, isn't it? So then the Pachubhanadhamma, here and now, the unconditioned, the unborn, 
And then in that Dhammapada verse, mindfulness, heedfulness is the path to the deathless. So it all comes together. This is it. You know, it's very pretty clear, isn't it, in terms of scriptural uh, teaching, scriptural authority. Uh, this is not kind of Ajahn Sumato interpretation. You know, when you when you develop this this reflectiveness, then the, then these suttas really, you know, they they're very different. You know, more useful than than if they're just intellectually from Sakya Ditti, Silabhata Brahmasa, reading uh, the Tripitaka. We can get it all wrong. You know, we can get, get it all screwed up in our, you know, if, if, through our own Sakya Ditti views and cultural biases, how we interpret Pali scriptures. So that's why I like that, that, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. To me, that's just saying, that's just wonderful. Because the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned, it's such a miserable place to be stuck in all these desires, endlessly kind of, you know, manacled and imprisoned by the desire realm and there's no way out. You know, well, no wonder people take to drink and take drugs. You know, you get some relief, maybe, from the dreariness, the kind of despair of life. If you, you know, if you take some of these uh, drugs, you get instant kind of bliss or relief from the onerous, dreary oppressiveness of conditioning. You know, so then they, then they, uh, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Mindfulness, the path to the deathless. Upamadonamiyanti, heedfulness, is deathlessness, is non-death. So I mean that, that isn't a, a, a statement to grasp, but it's a reflective statement, isn't it? This awareness and this simple ability, attentiveness here and now, and recognizing it, trusting it, and cultivating it, is it's very simple, it's simple as that. When I think about it personally, then it gets complicated. How mindful am I? Am I mindful all the time? Am I, you know, after 40 years, I should be mindful every moment, every second. Day and uh, and then I you know I did something you know unmindfully <laughs> and that's sakaditi again isn't it am I mindful or not mindful enough don't worry about it if you forget it you can remember it it's this be grateful for every every moment of remembering and have no regret about forgetting it. Don't cultivate a sense of despair around your heedlessness. But be, you know, appreciate every moment that you are mindful. It's kind of rejoice in it, you know, really value this moment. So then your, your life is one of 
of development, you know, and more and more you you trust it, and then it, you know you're you're learning to totally to trust something. You can totally rest in it. You don't have to do anything anymore, prove anything, or become anything. You don't have to try all the time, and then and uh, worry, and then feel despair because you you know you you can't live up to the standards that you're grasping. This sense of there's nothing to do, nothing to become. Recognizing freedom and our true home, Lumpachar calls it, our real home. It's like knowing your real home is this. You know, where you, where there's no longer this sense of separation. So this, this weather, this was, I think Germany was hit very hard by this uh, storm on the BBC. They found Germany was very, you know, hit worse than Britain was. But there have been about 10 or more deaths here in, in uh, Britain to the storm. And quite, quite a, I think the worst one since the hurricane in 87. So this is beyond our control, isn't it? The storms, this way. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, it's like like the body and like mental states, your own mental states. You can have you can have hurricanes and storms going through your mind. Now, but if we sat here yesterday, being upset by the storm, you know, oh, I didn't have the storm. What? We don't want it, you know. It'd be rather silly, wouldn't it? It's like this, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, make yourself utterly miserable because there's a storm outside. Well, apply that, you know, to your mind. You're having an internal hurricane. That's just like the storm outside. It comes and goes. It's not permanent, not self. We wouldn't consider the hurricane out there, the storm yesterday, as some kind of personal problem. So we can be more objective about it. But when it, the storm's going on inside your your jitta, then we, we assume it's it's my problem. It's better to, you know, attitude is seeing that it is a storm. You're not trying to deny it. But it, the relationship to it is not creating suffering because you don't like this this feeling. It'll pass, you know, it'll cease. You're patient. 